1: Mark loves challenges, both personal and professional. He would prefer to fail at a huge challenge than succeed at an easy challenge. In his career, he's always chosen to do the hard assignments and big challenges. In his opinion, the hard road is where personal and professional growth are realized. Personal challenges began early with the death of his father during his junior year in high school. Next came children and one with special needs. Most recently, a terminal disease diagnosis also dubbed his superpower with less than a year to live. With some luck, love, faith, soul, searching, study, and persistence, those challenges have only served to make the journey deeper and more meaningful. Some of Mark's professional challenges include volunteering for multiple operational and finance rescues, both foreign and domestic, while working with a Fortune 100 company to now leading a medium-sized Midwestern manufacturer through growing pains and COVID-19. Mark's first book, Joyous Leadership, is scheduled to be released later this year. The book focuses on how anyone can take their story, refocus, tilt the prism to the light, and have a beautiful, joyous journey. Mark believes in giving back and paying it forward. He's always on the lookout for opportunities to do both. And Mark finds making a difference in the lives of others, whether big or small, he finds them both very rewarding. So Mark, welcome to the Second in Command podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Cameron. I've really been looking forward to this. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to this as well and I, I first have to say I'm, I I'm really sorry about you losing your dad at such a young age that must have been a pretty brutal challenge.
0: It, it was a challenge but I think it defined me. I think it, would, it my father was also an entrepreneur and so I I'd, I'd already gotten a bug you know from some of the challenges he faced and uh, so it's it was while well, it was a challenge I think later have seen that as a blessing. It kind of learnt, lost me out of the nest. And uh, yeah. it was a great experience after it was all over, obviously.
1: You know, it's it's interesting. I spent a day at, um, in a maximum security prison about two and a half years ago. And it was I, I was there as a visitor, and it was a level four maximum security. It was the highest maximum security prison in the United States. And I was with guys who have been in there for between 18 and 34 years, very hardened, hardened criminals. But they were all being released, and they were being a training program to become entrepreneurs because we they realized that no one would hire these people they needed to unless they wanted to go back to crime if they have to make money they got to have to do it for themselves so they built this entrepreneur and residence program inside of this prison and i was talking to these guys and one of them said no matter how hard you've been on your children no matter how rough life has been on the children the world is going to be a much tougher place and anything you've gone through gets them ready for the future and i think you're right you're you know is the, the, the passing of your father at at a young age in high school has defined you and made you what you are. I'm sure it'd be pretty proud of your career. So, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you. So, so tell me first, first off, tell me what Bun is and, um, and then let's go back into your journey of how you kind of arrived at being the COO there as well.
0: Well, it's a interesting journey. The Bun family is, is, is very intriguing. There's actually a book out about the Bun family, but, um, they're they're a line of entrepreneurs uh they started uh, an interesting tidbit about them their first one of their first attorneys was abraham lincoln and so we're the land of lincoln here in springfield uh they've had several businesses right now the business that uh, the family is in is bunomatic a uh, short name is bun and we're a beverage dispense company primarily known for our coffee uh making abilities and dispense of coffee uh, we do other things. Uh, we do juice dispense, water dispense, we, any kind of uh, uh, juice delivery or, or, or uh, drinks we deliver. Uh, we have all the major, any place you go, and what we uh, in Canada that you would know uh, uh, that you go to, there's one every, about every five miles on the road there in Canada, you know that place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do all their coffee equipment. And uh, so it's become this little entrepreneurial company that supports a global network. Of of uh, suppliers of, of, of beverage dispense uh, companies, if you will, and so um, how I got here, I started the Fortune 100 company uh, years ago, uh, and and came. You kind of was known as the you know the Cameron. Everybody needs a Cameron, right? Well, I kind of got known as Mister Fix It, and it was by crazy chance, uh, Cameron. I was actually at the airport on my way. When I got, this is the old day, We had to pay for tickets, and uh, the lady at the desk said, uh, "Your flight's been changed to Frankfurt, Germany." And I go, "I don't know anyone in Frankfurt, Germany." And so here's the number you're supposed to call, and this is where you're headed. Then your flight leaves in an hour, and so I jump on. I call the number, and it's our group president. He goes, "Hey, we bought a facility over there, and it is down. It is not running, and I've been told you're the guy." And I did not even know this Greek president. (laughs) And so my first assignment was in Frankfurt, Germany, and uh, it was to get a a manufacturing place going again. So my career first, I kind of was bitter about these assignments, right? I'm thinking, why am I always the guy getting called Mm. to go to these places? And then I realized that was my gift. Uh, And I I thought, this is is really awesome. And so I, I went to two more foreign countries after that did some similar work with financial planning and some uh, regrowth of the business. And, um, and then one day, um, my phone rang, and uh, it was Bunnematic And they said, hey, I, they wouldn't tell me who they were. And they said, hey, we're a Midwestern guy. We'd like somebody to lead our global operations. And I said, uh, okay, that sounds great. What have you got? And they said, well, we really don't have it much. You know, we'd like to start that. And uh, so that really intrigued me because, number one, it was an entrepreneurial company. Uh, it was something kind of excited me. I've kind of always had an entrepreneurial spirit, even in my problem-solving, working for the Fortune 100s. Uh, it was exciting, the fact that I had some freedom to take a big vision and put some wheels on it. Uh, so anyway, through about six months of negotiating, talking back and forth what their vision was, and then meeting with the owner, uh, I was like, you know what, I, I think I'd like to do this. I'd like to spend, Switch gears here and changed my career and worked for an entrepreneur and it's been like drinking from a fire hose since then it's <laughs> been it's been a blast and uh, so i've loved it
1: how, how wh- what's the size of the company you, you you're mentioning it as a as an entrepreneurial company but at the same time you're mentioning it as a global operation and and you've got to be bigger than a real entrepreneurial company how how big are you or how small <laughs>
0: Well being a private company we we don't share a lot of that information, but uh, the way we handle it is through distri- distribution and we'd have a lot of contract employees around the world, but we're in the you know we're we're in that neighborhood of a couple thousand and uh,
1: okay well a, so and a couple thousand employees is not an entrepreneurial company <laughs> I mean <laughs> well it was it was okay well, how many how many employees were there when you got there seven or eight years ago?
0: Uh, probably about half that. Okay, and, um, but our the the owner that's he's a second generation of this business. His father began the automatic side of it. They were in a grocery distribution business prior to that, and he really took the company. I want to say started in the uh, uh, from his dad in the in the mid '80s, and uh, and just blew this thing up. He grew it. He he was everything. He would go on the road. He would go sell. He'd go meet with these big uh, international. Uh, coffee uh, companies and the, not only the coffee roasters, but the, you know, the Starbucks of the world, the Dunkin' sure. Donuts, the big guys. And, sure. and find out what their needs were. And here we were, this little small company. And and how do you support, you know, we, great, right, we chased the car and now we caught it. What do you do? And, uh, and he just had a passion for his customers. And he had a passion for the employees here. And uh, he's just so... He's a passionate guy in everything he does, and, and he has such an allegiance to his customers, which has been the strength of uh, of the company, and it's also driven the growth. And so these uh, global customers, they've made us global, whether we wanted to or not.
1: Well, you just skipped over something that I think you said that you know the one of the key to your growth has been the allegiance to your customers, but I think one of the other things that sounds like has been the key to the growth is just asking your customers what do they need, what are their needs. And then you sell into that need.
0: Yes, like, right? exactly. That's, that's what he does. He, he goes and finds out, because what we do, we tell people, we help you make money.
1: Because
0: mm. what we do, we help you know our customer. They, they're, they're at a convenience store, right? They're at a restaurant. They're at uh, uh, their, their uh, retail place of residence. So they're taking our product and making money. So we find out their pain points. We want to be invisible in their store. We just want to be the reason they're making money.
1: And I've, I've seen your brand. Like the bun, I've, I've definitely now when you said what it was, I'm like, oh, of course I've seen them. Like you are, you are everywhere.
0: Yes, we literally are everywhere. You can't go to very far that you're going to save some of our equipment.
1: So, you know, you you said a, f- a couple of times, you know, entrepreneurial. So I guess for you, having worked for Fortune 100s and then coming down to a company as small as a thousand, it's like when I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I took them from 14 people to 3,000. When I left, it was a big company to me. And then the, they brought in the former president of Starbucks, US, to replace me. And she said, what a cute little business this is. So <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of like you thinking a thousand is entrepreneurial. But so what's the difference in your mind now that you're the COO of this 2,000-person entrepreneurial company, what's the difference for, for you working in a big corporate environment versus more entrepreneurial? What, what are the differences that you see?
0: Well, I love big corporate. I really do. I, and, and I've enjoyed my time at big corporate because there's fun doing big deals, multi million dollar deals, and, and, seeing, and being able to change the world, being able to change the stock price possibly and stuff like that. But what is neat about an entrepreneurial company is that we're all in the room. We can make decisions so fast. We can be so nimble and we can make changes that impact our business literally in minutes.
1: And you can't do that in big corporate. So how do you avoid or what have you done to keep that entrepreneurial? At Starbucks, they used to say, grow big, act small. What have you done inside of Bun and Bunomatic to to kind of be a 2,000 person company, but stay nimble and stay entrepreneurial? Because some companies haven't been able to do that.
0: It's a challenge, uh, Cameron. Every day, uh, I think we, we do a gut check almost as to, to how we do this. But one thing we do we in our particular business, we take all of our key customers, and they have a key account manager, if you will, and we embed them when possible. We embed them in their business. We'll be in their building. We actually share a cubicle or an office or whatever, and, uh, and we stay close. If we're not in their business, uh, we stay close in their city, and we'll... Uh, be there close by. So we become a part of their enterprise. Mm. We don't wait for them to call us. We don't want to wait for them to have a problem. We were somewhat wired for COVID. We didn't know it. Uh, we had already put digital things in process where we could do uh, communicate digitally. So a lot of our equipment We'll send uh, them signals or we'll send them a populated platform. It'll send messages to us. Hey, I'm in trouble. I'm not getting cleaned. I'm not getting maintenance or whatever. And so we want to be their solution provider. We don't want to sell nuts and bolts as my boss, the owner says many times, anybody can sell a bucket of bolts. Anybody can do that. We have competitors. Mm. What we sell is a solution and we sell when you buy us, we want, to be known for making you money. If we don't, we want to know. We want to know our problems. If you didn't make money from us, then we we did something wrong.
1: So it sounds like you really stayed true to kind of the core purpose. And sadly, it's become such a trendy thing. But if I think back to your CEO, you know, back in the 80s and being out there on the road and talking to customers and just going for it. He was really passionate about that cause. And it sounded like that stayed as a thread throughout the business till today.
0: Even today, he will go see customers. He'll do customer meetings. Uh, He'll work relentlessly. He will, uh, you won't outwork this guy. Uh, So I think that's been key because his passion, it is the customer. I've seen Mm -hmm. many times he has a, you know, we have a, as all companies do, we have a code of ethics we follow. But if you want to see a guy that's passionate about it, they're on his desk anytime Mm -hmm. you go in there. And he will lose money on a project if that customer's not happy. He will go the second mile to make sure he made something right. If we, if we mess something up now, we don't do that very often. So that's because of his passion for that. Um, so that's, that's what's kind of fun. It's, well, it's fun work for a winning team.
1: Yeah. And they're not they're, Those aren't just core values or passion statements that are up on the wall either. Like you actually truly do live them. And I think that's the key difference then, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's very key. So, So you talked about, about vision. Um, How, how do you connect the team, you know, your leadership team and then the managers and the the frontline staff and and even your customers, how do you connect them with the vision for the organization?
0: Well, we continually, uh, I would say we adapt to that throughout the year, but at the beginning of every fiscal year for us as calendar year, we, We do strategic planning and we do it in depth by all the way to the department level. Uh, Even our people, our associates that are building our product, you know, those core values are out there. And we also communicate our vision, what we're doing this year, what, what we're trying to, how we're trying to connect with our customer, what, what projects we're working on, what we're trying to bring to fruition. So, um, we try to make all that visible and we, and, we don't make it stagnant either. Just because it's the January one rollout, if COVID hits on March fifteenth, guess what? Being a small innovative company, March 7th, 16th, we changed <laughs> and we changed fast, and 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 that excites people. You know they're one of the sayings that you know uh, I, I love sports saying. Bobby Knight supposedly one of his ex-wives told him, "Bobby, the horse is dead. Get off of it." You know you've heard people riding a dead horse or what or beating a dead yeah. horse. We don't do that here. We move. If something doesn't work, we move, we change.
1: I, I, I wish I could remember who said this thing I just heard the other day. And it's like, if you see a snake, don't create an SOP on how to kill the snake, just kill the <laughs> snake. Right. Exactly. Like, just. Um, so, so do you communicate, like, is that a mantra or is that like a mindset? Or are you always communicating those to the employees? Like, or is it just become so part of the culture that you just operate that way? Almost unconscious competence now?
0: Well, it, it's a little bit almost unconscious. This one, we still use a, uh, if you will, a, a format. We use a strategy deployment format, something they'll call the X Grid or whatever. We'll start that at the executive level. So we make sure we, and that's more of a visual, the gut check. Did we, we've got these uh, initiatives now, but have we backed them up with resources? Mm-hmm. And who is in charge of that? Who's in charge of and what? And what's the metric we're going to use for that initiative? Because it's easy to put something on the wall. So, oh, yeah, we're going to be the make our customers the happiest in the world. What does that mean? How do you measure that? And so we're passionate about If you can't measure it, it's going to be hard to do. So we drive that all the way to the metric so that we know whenever, if we make a difference, or we don't do good, right? We get immediate feedback. And we try to uh, make those as much as we can timely, weekly, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, and so forth.
1: So when you're, when you're a large company or or a 2000 person entrepreneurial company, you've got a, (laughs) you've got a lot of data, you've got a lot of metrics. There's a lot of stuff that's being measured. How do you know what to measure and what to look at at the leadership team level? And how do you, and then secondly, how do you know, or how does a business area know what they should be measuring? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, it's funny you ask that
0: because, um, about three or four years ago, we went through, and, and I'm glad we did this. Uh, if we'd had a crystal ball, we'd, we'd look like a genius maybe. But we had gone through about three or four years ago, and we were asking those same questions. What do people know? What information do they have? And how fast the feedback are they getting? And we invested literally uh, millions of dollars into a, to an IT system to allow us to um, – uh to give those feedbacks and and, and to run our data our analytics we have a whole analytics team a huge analytics team here actually that they analyze everything from our customer data to make sure we're pleasing our customer all the way to our financial data to our internal so we developed a dashboard if you will for our executive team and our executive team during covid we have done this every day we meet either through zoom or through, we have a big, huge conference room that we can all meet and we can take our mask off. We are, we're far enough apart. Um, but we meet every day. The first thing is on the wall is our dashboard. Wow. It's, it's a live dashboard. Well, wow. And, uh, and, and we've invested, like say, uh, millions of dollars in this thing. And, uh, And we have our analytics team populate that. And then it evolves. The dashboard evolves. Everything from our sales revenue to our customer satisfaction to uh, how well are our receivables going to uh, everything to the health of the business and health of our customer. And even our service of our team, we have a service company that's part of our company. Uh, They have live dashboards for every customer. And so we know how well we're servicing them and, and any potential flashpoints. And sometimes we've even called them and say, hey, we know we've got an outage in New York. And here's what we're doing. They go, we have an outage in New York? <laughs> they don't even know they have an outage. Yes, we do. we got a service team going in. And so it's pretty fun,
1: actually. So, so you've got the dashboards. You're looking at them on a daily basis. You've got your analytics team kind of populating it all. How, how many metrics are kind of rolling up to your leadership team? Is it, is there a, or is it everything? It can't be a. No, no, it's
0: not everything. And it's by tier, right, Cameron? I mean, our CEO and, and the top level, we're doing a cut at the top level. Yeah. And then we have a, we'll have what we call maybe a, a popcorn level. something that maybe it might be a flashpoint that we say, hey, you know, this is, this is up and coming with uh, one of our tier customers that we want to focus on. So we need to be able to you know they've changed management. They've changed the, uh, their statements and so we kind of go around the room. we do our popcorn thing to each of our areas and um, so that makes sure we don't just blindly look at a dashboard because sometimes the dashboard it's after the problems already happened right so you don't want to do that so we pride ourselves in knowing something's coming before it populates the dashboard and we do that through our popcorn session if you will that as things pop up
1: now, is your popcorn because you used to sell a popcorn machine to somebody? And that was it. That now it's like, or is it things pop up?
0: Uh, it's more as things pop up. But we, I'm sure I believe it will not. At one time, uh, when we were in the grocery business, we, uh, we sold popcorn. Right. Uh, but not, we have a side business. That's why I say we're an entrepreneurial company. I didn't tell you everything we do. We have a side business that does. Uh, you can get it online. It's, it's called Pizzas Bun Gourmet. We sell premium chocolate candy. We sell premium meats. We sell premium popcorn. Uh, you uh, have to Google it. It's the best in the world. And what's it What's Good it called? A uh, Peasy's Bun Gourmet. You can get it on our website. But Just go to bun.com and you'll see a link to uh, our home uh, products division.
1: I will check it and, out uh, for sure. I, um, if you're in
0: the area, Cameron, I'll treat you to filet from Bun Gourmet and you won't eat anything
1: else. I'd love to. I was on a on a bus at a, a CEO event in Barcelona 10 years ago. I was sitting beside this guy and I said, what do you do? And he said, I sell steaks. I sell steaks online. I'm like, oh yeah, where are you from? He's like, Omaha. I'm like, oh, there's a company <laughs> in Omaha. I'm like, oh my God, you're Omaha steaks? He's like, yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah there are you are you doing more now as an organization online than than i mean certainly during covid we've migrated but what are you doing as a company your size to leverage um to leverage online in terms of sales marketing connecting with customers that kind of stuff yes that's a, another great question we uh we have we've done a whole lot
0: and we were doing this we we were wired for covid and i don't even think we realized it we do a uh, business recovery plan and we updated every year and we'd update. We said, oh, what if a world pandemic happens? We kind of we gloss on that. No pandemic's going to happen, right? But we had already set up in our system to redeploy people to work from remote locations. Should we have a storm and all this kind of stuff. And then, like I said, when March hit, we found out we could redeploy about four hundred people really quick wow. <laughs> in our corporate office, and so we're like, "Oh my gosh!" We weren't even sure the infrastructure would handle it, but it did. And uh, but anyway, we so what we've done with our customers because all of our customers are doing the same thing, right? They're they're masked up, they can't travel, and uh, and so we've done everything from virtual um, demonstrations of our equipment. We have a heavy uh, training side where we do video training and we do. We'll do it in person, but we also do classroom on, that's online. Uh, we have uh, what we call coffee gathering, the hangouts where these baristas can gather, and we show them new ways of, of using our equipment, and it's all online. Uh, so we, while well, COVID distances, in a way, we became better. Mm-hmm. We became closer in, in, in a certain way because now we don't have to take that six-hour plane flight right. to the West Coast or, or, or the eight-hour plane uh, to, the, to Europe. Ah, uh, we can literally set something up tonight if you want to.
1: Well, and it can be yeah. it can be perfected now instead of relying on Bob to do it perfectly, in you know Switzerland and Fred to do it great in Omaha, and like Kelly to do it great in Toronto. You've got it now systemized and dialed.
0: Yes, it, it's it's it was kind of interesting. Uh, just uh, just last week I was actually going by our CFO's office and I heard a voice I recognized. I didn't realize I'd walked in on a on a video conference. And there was my operations person in, in China. I haven't seen her in person in 15 months. And uh I said, Hey, Eleanor, how's it going? And she's Oh, Mark, so good to see you in person. But She called it in person, right? <laughs> because we're, we're looking at each other on a video monitor. But so we were able to do so much and I think it's brought us together in so many ways. And we appreciate uh so many things for, we did a, um, a major rollout with uh, one of our uh, major suppliers, a uh, coffee company. And uh, we did a happy hour after after hours, and a cocktail hour, if you will. And we were all zoomed in and, and we had you know, the tiles of all the the their executives and our executives and we're having a little cocktail hour. Uh, even though we couldn't be together, we would normally be celebrating that rollout being complete and they're happy, they're making money, they were excited. But we did that right before Christmas and and we're all toasting each other for Christmas. And I really think we have a kin. Some of those people I would not have seen otherwise. Mm. It was really kind of intimate, but yet it was,
1: it was on zoom. Interesting. I, I almost get the sense that, um, that nothing's going wrong at bun. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. What, what do you guys struggle with as an organization or what are you working on today that, um, you know, maybe as a weakness or, or something that you're working on. Yeah.
0: yeah, one of the things that we're working on that we that COVID did expose, um, and I talked about digital. We're 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 we were already working on digital playing with it. We have customers that have their own app, you know, if you will. And but we toyed in that area and there was little demand for it. And and so we supported it with very little, right? I mean, there just wasn't a lot of demand, and uh, we have uh we had an initiative internally, but uh, but now that COVID hit, digital is like, oh my gosh, everybody wants digital. They want to be able to monitor their equipment remotely. They want us to monitor it. Uh, they want us to give them data that we were doing on a micro level. Now that we're being asked to do on a macro level across the huge platforms, and not only that, they said, so while you're at it, would you could you monitor my ice machine? We're like, we don't build an ice machine. We don't say that actually. We're like, sure. <laughs> we'll monitor that too. And so we're we we, we st- we're struggling in that area. We're struggling uh, a massive right. resources and the amount of investment it takes to do that. Uh, we're still the leader in our industry in that area, but we'd like to be 10 times bigger in that area than we are. And uh, we're going to need to be.
1: Now you, so you guys get a lot of intel from your customers from being on site with them then. So are, is that kind of, are you losing a little bit of that right now or is that it? A-
0: uh, exactly uh, yeah. some, some now are as you know most are not meeting we have uh, uh, many of our customers major major retail chains that the, their offices are still remote yeah and uh, and so we're obviously remote with them um, but we're losing that intimacy. we're not in their labs we're right. not in there uh, like we used to be they're not in our labs we yeah. have a huge lab here uh, it's we call it a playground of, of our equipment that they can come in and They'll say, "Yeah, I like that, but I'd like to have a big screen on the front of it, and so they can do that before." With, sure. "Oh, let's pop a screen on there and see what you like," and now we're having to learn to do that. We have video equipment. We have a camera crew that comes in and, and does that. So it, it's it's harder, and it's uh, and and that, and people still like to touch, and they yeah. want to feel something work, and so uh, that's something we we struggle with.
1: How about at the leadership team level? Um, first, first off, talking about the family level. Are there are there multiple family members working inside the company?
0: No, just the um, just the patriarch. Okay, um, this is it. This is it. Actually, he okay.
1: Will, uh, when he retires, he'll turn it over to a board, more than likely. And is it is it privately held still? Still privately held. Yes. Okay. Um, so you don't really have the family dynamics of nepotism and stuff. So that that question will be irrelevant. Then, how about at the leadership team level? How do you prevent? What what are you doing to prevent silos and the the um, yeah, the silos and politics and turf wars that happen, you know, Pat, Pat Lencioni's kind of favorite book, yeah. but how do you prevent that stuff from happening? And what do you, what do you do internally to work on that? Cause it sounds like you would have a fairly strong team.
0: We do. We have a really strong team. One, one thing it's been, you, you said something earlier about the nepotism. We, one thing we don't have here is, is that, and that's because the owners, uh, the family that represents the ownership here. Um, he, he is really strongly again. I mean, he is, can be violently about uh, do not play games. You know, we're, we, we act like a family here. And uh, so if somebody's hurting, you know, it's still like a family, even though I'm not related to anyone here, uh, we run in and help each other. We, um, and he demands that. And so because of that, our team see that I won't say we never have a skirmish. We do because we're strong personalities. Sure. But, uh, but in the end, our mission wins.
1: So do you work on that together? Is that something, or how do you call out conflict? Let's say like, tell me about a time that you had a conflict with someone in the workplace and how you guys address that or how you address that.
0: Yeah, there's been a couple of ways. Uh, I will say the, uh, our, our, CEO, he will, he's very good at sniffing it out, right? He's been doing this for 40 years. So he smells as if there's a conflict, but he'll let it go and see if it gets resolved among the team. If not, he will call in, or if it's my team, I will call them in. And, and you know, do we just put it on the table? we mm. put the issue on the table, not the person. Not the person. Yep. Yes, the issue. We put the issue on the table, and that takes away the, uh, you know, you're attacking me. It, we no, we're attacking the issue. Here's what's yep. not getting done. And it, it's it's I won't say it's always smooth. There's not some maybe a little bit of bitter taste occasionally, but but we've been together a long time.
1: I have a a course that I'm launching. Um, By the time this podcast airs, it'll be launched. So it's, I can talk about it. It's called invest in your leaders. And one of the 12 modules that I teach in the course is around conflict management. And I talk about confronting and addressing the issue, not the person, you know, you can talk about what the person did, but it's what, it's what they did. It's not them as a human being, right? It's yes.
0: Yes, one thing we, we talk about we do we do performance reviews even at the executive level just they're not the boxes you check but one of things we that one of the things we talk about is we say address the issue be direct but be quick and get off of it don't just belabor the review that oh Cameron and you, and you pick the one bad issue Cameron had this year no talk about it say hey this is the bad issue we had but here's what we're doing. Now let's move on.
1: Move on. Yeah, exactly. Like don't belabor that point, right? Yes. All all of those grandmotherisms are so true, right? Don't belabor the no, point. Like, <laughs> They just are so true. Talk to about to me about global expansion a little bit. What have you learned in the global expansion with Bun?
0: Yeah, the global expansion is expensive. Um, and it's also uh the key is getting good leaders in those regions, whatever region you tend to expand in. Uh, the last one that we did a major expansion in was uh, it was Asia. And uh, it was so, which sorry? We've learned, well, it was Asia, all okay. of Asia primarily. We, we have a home base in China, uh, just outside of Shanghai. And uh, so, the big thing that I think we've learned is the volatility of, of, of the various countries. You know, this, we have to guard ourselves against currency, uh, precious metals. Um, and so, we're all as you know, the last four years in the United States uh, <laughs> was very interesting with some of our trade embargoes and our uh, uh, tariffs, if you will. And uh, and so we had to be nimble. Yeah. And so that's the big thing. It's being nimble. Don't ever get the thing so stodgy that you can't be nimble and grow and move, and, and respect and respond to the market.
1: Which which countries in Asia were you starting to work in?
0: Uh, our, of course, the big guy is, is, is China, but we also do uh, Japan. We have a, a pretty good contingency in Japan, and uh, that's probably our two in Korea, South Korea, obviously. Uh, that's our biggest areas that we have, uh, but we've done Thailand, you know, we do some of the smaller countries as well. Look, obviously, we are we dip down into Australia, uh, but uh, it's just another side of the world uh, mm-hmm. that's primarily been served by, by China and some of the some of the eastern european countries so we've been getting involved in that doing some local manufacturing if you will over there in a contract basis uh but uh, it's been an exciting growth period but but the uh, <clears throat> I'd say the conflicts around the world have made some of that challenging as well. Yeah,
1: it would make it challenging for sure. I, I've got an organization called the COO Alliance and it's the only network of its kind in the world for second in commands. But I also have coached a lot of CEOs and COOs globally. And I was coaching a COO a couple of years ago from Thailand. And one of the differences that I saw with him was he really didn't ever want to address conflict with his CEO. It was, it was, um, Oh, I, I couldn't do that. It, it's, it would, it would almost be like a, a, a grandchild saying they were pissed off at your grandparents. Like you just don't do that. It's just not, you know, it's just not done. Yes. Um, have you noticed anything that is just not done in Asia that we can learn from or that is just done very differently?
0: You know, I've been fortunate to work uh, most of Europe and 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 Asia. I had Asia in my fortune 100 job for about five years. Um, and I had um Mexico, which is, uh, so they're all different, Cameron. Every, Mm -hmm. every country is different, but you know, one thing we all have in common around the world, I tell people, I see all the difference politically that we we talk about, Oh, we don't, we're mad at the Russians or we're mad at, but as individuals, when I work with those individuals there, we all value the same thing, right? right? We want to be safe. We want to make a living. We want to take care of our families. They all want that too. And so I try to get down when I'm working with those teams on that same base level, um, and so but you're right there are social differences there's uh, cultural differences um for example in my my facility in mexico they never want to tell you things wrong right or everything's going to be done tomorrow manana oh well yep. yes we'll do that manana <laughs> and so i had to learn that's not really tomorrow no. <laughs> that may translate tomorrow but that may be next week or next year it means in <laughs> and, the future <laughs> exactly and so we we in my Fortune 100 company, we had cultural classes that we had to attend before we could serve in those countries, mm. and so we do a little bit of that here. Uh, we we we're obviously not as big as my Fortune 100 company, but but so we try to uh, we have work with uh, consultants or whatever that may be, and we help to learn with the help us learn the cultural side of it. What what are we how are we dealing with them culturally, and how are they seeing us culturally? Right. You know, yeah, we may be good here, but that we're not so favorably viewed maybe in another country.
1: No, for sure. I mean, and I think that's, you're right, that at the human level, we are just all kind of following Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, and providing for yes. our family and ourself and value and, and making a difference and, and that kind of ascension up Maslow's hierarchy. But but yeah, there is some the cultural differences. It's interesting that you actually have courses and you have to go through that stuff before you allow people to go work there. It's smart because otherwise you just you're going to bungle that stuff up for sure. Um, how about yourself as a leader, Mark? I mean, you've, you've certainly grown as a leader and, and been able to progress up in the corporate world. What have you had to work on over the years as a leader?
0: Oh, some of that I'll, I was actually telling in my book, because some of it's very humbling. <laughs> Karen, I've had some really bad mistakes that I've made uh, that I've learned from. One of them was learning to keep my mouth shut uh, with, Uh, was probably one of the first things. You know, being an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, and also I'm competitive. I love to win. Not just me, but I love for my team to win. And sometimes uh, uh, you have to be careful in that there's not a loser. Uh, And so sometimes my team won, or I won individually if there was a loser in the room. And that's not good for growth. That's not good for the team. And so I had to learn to couch some of my enthusiasm and couch my interjection to hurry up and say something and be really quick-witted, if you will. that was very damaging. Now, I learned that 20 years ago. I wish I'd learned it 40, but anyway, that's that's one of the first things. And so I've learned a lot. I had some really great mentors. I've got a good mentor now, and the owner here, uh, the owner here has taught me so much because he is an entrepreneur and and so I was big corporate for 20 years. And all of a sudden now I'm doing entrepreneurial work. And if you will, I know you don't think we're entrepreneurial, but, but we still are because you know, we're, we're family owned. And uh, so I see it through different eyes. We don't have uh, the benefit of, of, you know, we're playing with his money. This is not a stock market, right? We, we're playing with real money. And so it's different. And so mm-hmm. I've got to learn so much from those experiences. And it's made me appreciate uh, the leaders that I've worked for and, and to take nuggets from those leaders and it, even a bad leader, you learn something, right? Yeah. And so it's uh, it's just, I've been fortunate really. Yeah. Well,
1: we were, we were talking just before we went live that, you know, as an operator, we tend to, to want to fix stuff. Um, you know, we want to dive in and fix stuff. And we often have that, that the competency to do a lot of that too. How do you prevent yourself from diving in and doing stuff when really our core role is to grow people so that they can do more stuff.
0: That was a growth process for me. I, I think I told you before we got went live, I was kind of known, you know, you're you're known as somebody needs a Cameron, right? Everybody needs a Cameron and you're kind of the go-to guy, in the COO world. I came to be known as kind of Mr. Fix-It when something was broken, but I was at that point, I was the guy in there doing, right? I was in there like, yep. Hey, let's get this going. Let's move this piece of equipment. Let's do this, whatever. And then, uh, as I progressed through the world, uh, through the corporate world, then I realized, wait a minute, I've got to work through other people. And so that team leadership role became, and I really, for me, I learned to really love that part of the business. I think even more, I didn't know that I would, uh, one of the things that makes me happiest is when my team succeeds and I get to watch, I'm not like a proud papa almost right You're, mm. you're like, Hey, that's my team. Look at them go. And, uh, so I think through that growth and I, and for us, I try to always work through at least two tiers. I always look at the, the first of the tier that reports directly to me, but mm. are we developing that second tier? Great. And so one of the things I ask my leaders all the time is when you get hit by the bus, who's going to be Jerry, Bill, Tom, who's going to be your replacement, Sally, who's going to take care of your role now. And so sometimes they look at me just the same as I was in that role. I'm like, uh, I don't have anybody Right. Think about that, you know? And, uh, so watching a team grow is kind of self-sustaining for me.
1: Mm, it's great. And, great.
0: Uh, and I love, uh, I got a note yesterday from a team member actually thanking me for, uh, I put them in a growth position. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> we call it constant gentle pressure.
1: I, and, I have uh, a feeling yeah. you get a lot of notes of thank yous. I have a feeling you're, you're one of those good leaders. Uh, well, I, I get a few, and, and but
0: maybe not at the time, right? Because I'm putting them in a the growth position and I tell them this is going to define you. Let's get out there and I won't let you fail. I won't let it be terminal, but I do want to put you near the flame yeah. and let you feel that because that's what work hardens you. That's what makes you tough.
1: It's funny that you, you've said a couple of times that the, I need a Cameron, I got to tell the story briefly before we, I wrap with my final question with you. But I was at a speaking event that I was doing 13 years ago and I walked off a stage and this guy, Kevin Lawrence, walked up to me and he said, oh my God, you're Cameron. And I went, yeah, just, just the little kid from Northern Canada. He goes, no, but I thought you were a saying. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you thought I was a saying? He said, everyone in YEO or in EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization, Everyone has been walking around for years saying, I need a Cameron. And what they meant was because I had helped Brian grow 1-800-GOT-JUNK, they wanted someone like me in their company. He said, I thought it was like a BHAG or a saying. He said, I thought it, a Cameron was a thing. I didn't realize it was you. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I anyway. love that
0: story. I do. Love, I read that story and I, I, I chuckled out loud because- Oh, I, I must, chuckled, did I write I it
1: Maybe I wrote it in my book, Double Double. I forgot that I might've even said that because yeah, he and I have become really good friends and we go for dinner every couple of years. And, but that was just something that I always laughed about the I need a Cameron. So let me go back, Mark. You were, let's go back to you at like 22 years old. So roll the camera. We're going to go back to you as a 22 year old. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known when you were just starting in your career? Oh, that's easy. Uh, I actually
0: talk about that in the, my book. Hopefully it makes the cut. The editors have it. But uh, take the hard assignment.
1: Mm.
0: Get, take You know, sometimes we're we're wired. We go to college. They say, oh, you want this good cushy job. You want this. And we think that's what we're going for, right? I want a nice office with a corner office with a view and whatever. And, you know, you're you're like a, not a saint for madman or whatever, madman. But that's not where the fun's at. The fun is taking that assignment that everybody else turned down and I'm going to take that thing and I'm going to beat that thing down and I'm going to build me a team and we're going to take that to a new level. Even if I fail, what have I lost? Nothing. It was already lost somebody else already gave it up. So at 22 years old, I would say I would have started taking tougher assignments sooner.
1: Wow that's interesting it's only the second time i've heard someone say that probably in my whole life and someone just said it a few weeks ago as well and i think that's really insightful because you're right that's that is what's going to allow you to kind of jump up in your career and it challenges you and you grow so that's very cool all right so mark watson the executive vice president from bun thank you so much for sharing with us today um and tell us again what was the name of your book that's going to be coming out this year joyous leadership joyous leadership awesome i'll be keeping an eye open for it thanks for sharing with us really appreciate the time Thanks,
0: Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.